There are lots of things that people think are in the Bible. When you read the Bible, you find they're not in the Bible, right? So we're going to, over the next few weeks, talk about a few of those kind of um, concepts, thoughts, ideas, and then not just say, okay, that's not in the Bible. Well, what does the Bible teach about that kind of subject? Okay? And so tonight we're going to start in a few minutes with one. I want you to know you are part of the, there's been a two-part experiment tonight. The first part went well at 4 o'clock. The second part is happening now. I am in control of what is on the screens through my phone. And so if I want to change, I just do that, and it changes. Isn't that amazing? Amazing is what it is, all right? So uh, I am in control of the screens unless something goes wrong, and then we'll blame it on somebody else, all right? But we're going to talk about some things that aren't in the Bible that some people think should be, um, some people think are. Uh, perhaps the most famous quotes that are not in the Bible that people think are comes from a guy whose birthday has been recently, I think. His name is Benjamin Franklin. Anybody know Benjamin Franklin? Anybody know how old Benjamin Franklin would be now? 305, he'd be old, that's right. 305, all right? Here are some things that Benjamin Franklin said, okay? By preparing, or by failing to prepare, you prepare to fail. Time is money. Do you love life? Then do not squander time, for that is the stuff life is made of. God helps those who help themselves. If you would know the value of money, go and try to borrow some. Hey, I'm trying to. There are three faithful friends: an old wife, an old dog, and ready money. I don't know what ready money is, but I guess that's money ready to be spent. I don't know. But we're going to talk about some things that aren't in the Bible that some people would think that. And I, I came across this as it's 10 signs that you may not be reading your Bible enough, also known as 10 really bad jokes, but we're going to go with them, all right? The first one is this. You think the epistles were the wives of the apostles. You think Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Your favorite Old Testament hero is Hercules. You, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were a rock group from the 60s? You open your Bible to the book of Micah and a World War II bond falls out. You're frustrated when you can't find Charlton Heston in the concordance. You catch your teenager ringing the song of Solomon and want to know who gave you that trash. You tell your kids the story of Jonah, the shepherd boy, and his ark of many colors. And you think the verse, cleanliness is next to godliness, is found in the book of First Impressions. All right? So we hopefully are people that have been reading our Bibles, and so we're going to talk about some stuff that's not quite in there. And tonight we're going to talk about something that people say when they're looking for direction in life. And it is true that in our day and time it is easy to get bad directions, right? It's easy to get and receive and take bad directions. Sometimes signs don't help us out. I saw some of these signs. Uh, you can't read that from back there because... Our screens are not very good. But it says straight ahead is Sturgeon Bay, 
And to the right is Sturgeon Bay. So which way do you go to Sturgeon Bay? I like this one a lot. It says you can't turn right or left. You must proceed straight ahead. The problem is straight ahead is a concrete wall. You have this that I don't really know where that's going to lead you. You've got entrance only. Do not enter. All right? And then my personal favorite, if you're in the right lane, I don't know why you would turn left, right? Kind of turning into traffic there. But So here's what people say sometimes. You're looking for a decision. You're trying to make a decision. And they'll say, let your conscience be your guide. Sounds really good. Not in the Bible. Anybody have any idea where that saying comes from? Anybody know anywhere else you've ever heard it? What's that? What'd you say, Miss Teresa? When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Not just a little squeeze, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell. Jiminy Cricket, right. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. Always let your conscience be your guide. Now, there are a lot of people who think that that's where it originated from. We... Uh, not we. I didn't do the research. I found it. All right. Scholars have found that it goes back a little bit farther than Disney, Walt Disney, Jiminy Cricket, Pinocchio. They've traced it all the way back to the father of one of Muhammad's wives, as in Islamic Muhammad's wife. His name was Caliph Umar ibn Akhab, and he was the father of one of Muhammad's wives. He was the third Muslim Caliph or um, head guy, and after conquering Jerusalem, he returns with this message. Speak the truth. Don't hesitate to say what you consider to be the truth. Say what you feel. Let your conscience be your guide. So here's the question. That's not in the Bible. Just because a Muslim said it doesn't mean that it is completely untrue. But the question is, can we let our conscience be our guide? I see lots of head shaking. No. Why not? <laughs> Depends on what a conscience you got. Right. You want to come teach, Johnny? Because that's good. That's, that's one of my points in here. Depends on what con- What do you mean by that, Johnny? That's good. Somebody else. Why not? I see lots of no's. Anybody think we should let our conscience be our guide? We're going to talk tonight briefly about what the Bible says about conscience. We're going to jump around in the scriptures a little bit. So we're not going to be in one in particular. But I want us to follow a progression here to see some things about the idea of the conscience. Okay, so We're going to talk about what it is, what's wrong with it, and what's right about it. Okay, The first thing that we know is that God formed our conscience. Proverbs 20.27 says that there is the spirit of a man as the lamp of the Lord, and it searches the inner depths of his heart. It's that God gives a moral searchlight within all of us that is searching our hearts and our lives to see what is right and what is not within us. The word conscience comes from two 
Latin words. I took Latin in, in high school and don't remember a bit of it. But I saw this today, all right? Conscience comes from con, which means with, and science, which means knowledge. And when you put them together, that sounds like with knowledge or knowledge with. It really means kind of an inner knowledge, something within us. And the Bible teaches that there is within us some sort of inner knowing of right from wrong. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, how do we know that their conscience was pricked? What did they do? What did they do? They hid and they were trying to find something to put on, right? They were looking for some way to cover up. And so they had shame. They had some sort of understanding that they had done wrong. Um, In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother. Now, had the Ten Commandments been given yet? No. Had God, as far as we can tell, now I'm not, it may be in their walks in the garden he had said some things, but as far as we can tell, had he told them, do not kill? No, not that we can tell. But Cain still knows it's wrong. There's still something in there that says it's wrong. Somebody has said that our conscience is to our soul what nerves are to our body. All right? When I was growing up... Um, my mother likes to tell the story that I ran through five babysitters in a month. That it was all because of me that I ran them off. One particular babysitter made it six hours. And this was the incident that stopped it all, and she ended up leaving. She made us some toasted pimento cheese sandwiches. Anybody here ever had toasted pimento cheese sandwiches? Oh, man. Get that? You put the oven on, I'll give you a little tip. You put the oven on broil, you put the bread in there, you stick it in there, and you flip it, and you do it on the other side, all right? Melts the pimento cheese. It's good stuff. Well, she pulled it out, set it on the side, walked away. I went to get my pimento cheese sandwich. And I reached over onto the hot pan, and I grabbed it. Now, what did I do as soon as I touched that pan? I pulled it off, right? Why? It's hot. Well, how did I know it was hot? It hurt. There was something in my, the nerves in my fingers told my brain. There was a sense that went there, and I don't fully understand all of that, but it said, this is hot, get your hand off, right? Didn't take long either. <laughs> I didn't think about it, right? You're right. There are people that are born without being able to experience pain or nerves. The nerves. I'm not talking about nervous. I'm talking about the nerves. And what they find is it's a life that's filled with danger because they don't know to take your hand off the hot tray, and so their hands get severely burned. They don't know that the object that's sharp that's poking in is causing major damage. Well, the conscience is to be for us kind of like that, kind of like when I put my hand on that hot tray and yanked it off. And so God created us with this ability to innately kind of know what's right from wrong. Um, even the secular world understands that we have conscience. There's a guy named Marvin Berkowitz who is an expert on moral development. 
And he says kids have an internal conscience. It starts developing in the first years of life, kicks into high gear around three or four. Our conscience tells them we're about to violate or have violated our moral code. You can see this even in preschoolers who cry out their own selfishness or who try to soothe those they have hurt. Um, We see this even with uh, Luke, who's four. When he does anything where he trips or he accidentally bumps into his sister, particularly. Now, if he hits his brother, he doesn't care. But if he hits his sister and he thinks he may have hurt her, you see that remorse, that I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's different from the I'm saying I'm sorry to get out of trouble. It's the I'm really sorry. And you see, even in that kind of childhood state that it happens. Now, the crazy thing is that even without moral law being taught, he knows hurting someone else is not a good thing. And even though there is great diversity in people across this globe, almost every civilization that has ever existed have agreed upon certain things that are right and that are wrong. Now, not all things, but a certain thing. Nobody thinks it's okay to kill each other. Nobody thinks it's okay to steal or take other people's stuff. They know that that's not right. If you want to know if people believe that there is an A, right or wrong, just see how they react when someone does something to them they don't agree with. Back to the four- and five-year-olds. Go sit in a preschool class. Go downstairs tonight and see if you can observe for a minute and say, let me watch as one child takes a toy away from another. And the one that gets the toy taken away has an innate sense of right and wrong. Right? C.S. Lewis would argue in his book, Mere Christianity, that that is one of the very evidences, one of the most powerful evidences of God. God created two things that kind of shout out to the world that there is a God that exists. It's called natural or general revelation. And one thing is the world in which we live, creation itself, the beauty and the majesty and the glory of all that we see. That's an external evidence. But then there's the internal evidence of knowing right and wrong. C.S. Lewis would say that it is perhaps the strongest argument for a moral, personal God. That we all have this sense. Somebody else has said that that conscience is like the yellow line on a two-lane road. I grew up in West Tennessee, and I drove all the time from Dyersburg, the metropolis of Dyersburg, to my great-grandparents who lived in Brazil, Tennessee. Now, if you don't know where Brazil is, it's right next to Gibson Wells, okay? That'll give you an idea, right? And we was a two-lane road all the way there. I don't drive on two-lane roads much anymore. But on a two-lane road, if it's solid yellow lines, what does that mean? You don't cross it. If it's a dotted yellow line, it means it's okay to pass, right? That's the general idea. Now, it doesn't stop people from passing, right? Have you ever seen anybody pass when the line was solid? Anybody ever seen that? 
Anybody ever passed when the line was solid? Anybody done that? All right? It doesn't stop you, but it's a guide that tells you that. Okay? Our conscience is to kind of be that. It's, it's not going to stop us, but it ought to tell us when we ought to be careful. Now, here's the problem. Even though our conscience was formed by God, our conscience has been deformed by sin. The problem is not the conscience that God gave us. It's the conscience that we've developed as we continue to grow older. Somebody has said, when a person continually ignores the dictates of his conscience, the conscience can become faulty. You can take a perfectly good compass, one that's pointing north, hold a magnet next to it, and change the orientation of the compass. Your conscience doesn't become ruined instantaneously. It just gradually withers away. The first thing that happens is that our moral guidance is distorted. Your conscience, is uh, somebody said, is like a triangle with sharp corners on the inside of you. And when you first make a mistake, it pricks you and it hurts. But the more you ignore it, it's like sanding down the edges until instead of a triangle with sharp edges, it's a beach ball that doesn't hurt anything. You gradually take it and overstep its bounds every time you ignore it or deny it. It's like filing those sharp edges down. The Bible says this in Titus. To those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Anybody here ever not told the whole truth? Some of you just did that now because you didn't raise your hand, all right? So everybody raise your hand this time, all right? Here we go. We've all done that. And sometimes in relationships, the first time we do that with somebody in a relationship, we have that sense, oh, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. But then nothing ever comes of it. Now, nobody gets mad or nobody finds out, and it gradually becomes easier. Now, you mentioned kids. It's just easy to see this in kids. It's just easy to see this in Eli when he does something and he gets caught. It's easier to see when he does something and he thinks he gets away with it. And how the next time it becomes a little easier for him to do. Gradually, we move away from where our conscience can be a good guide. Some of you know who George O'Leary is, right? Somebody tell me, who's Joe, George O'Leary? What does he do? He's a football coach, right? Where is he coaching now? Central Florida? Where was his most prestigious place of coaching? No, that he was hired for. Notre Dame. Anybody know how long he was at Notre Dame? Five days. Hired as coach of Notre Dame. Five days later, he's fired. Why? Because on his resume, it said he had a master's degree and lettered for three years at New Hampshire. The problem is... It wasn't true. Well, when you become the coach of Notre Dame, people check those kind of things out. Right? When you're the coach of 
I don't know. Vanderbilt. They, no, I'm just kidding. When you're the coach of, when you're the coach of small where he had been, they, you know, they, well, he's a good coach, and he was a good, he is a good coach. Here, here's what they asked him about later. He said when he was young and he was trying to impress some people, he put it on his resume, and he never got caught, and so he never thought of taking it off. You know, even if it would have been on previous resumes, if he wouldn't have put it on his Notre Dame resume, it wouldn't have mattered. And that, being a letterman at New Hampshire, did not get him the Notre Dame job. His conscience just kind of got sanded away. Eventually, it leads to a place that the Bible says there is a way within the heart of man that seems right. But in the end, it leads to destruction. Eventually, our moral guidance goes from distorted to deadened. Um, a person can commit sin over a period of time to the point that basically his conscience is deadened. First Timothy 4 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as with a hot iron. The picture there is very graphic. Sear. The, the Greek word is kautorizo. Does that sound like anything you do when you do something with a hot thing? You cauterize stuff. It, it, we mentioned earlier um, doing things to the point that it begins to deaden who you are. Anybody ever known somebody that, that was a burn victim um, that, that recovered, but that the, the place where they were burned was burned bad enough that it didn't fully recover? Um, I, I read this week a pastor who had a friend that as a child got burned pretty bad and had a huge scar from it. And that friend used to make everybody think he was tough. He would take a knife and he would stick it in the scar. He would take a, a, a lit cigarette and put it out on his arm. Say, look how tough I am. Well, he wasn't tough. It's just that that particular area of his body had been cauterized to the point where the nerves no longer responded to anything. The Bible says that the same can happen to people and their conscience. Someone can ignore their conscience so long in certain areas that it's completely desensitized. I mean, you know, I, I, I hear some of the horror stories in our history, things like the Holocaust, and um, wonder how the, the Nazi soldiers could go through with the orders they had been given. Stories of, of serial killers, a guy like Ted Bundy, who, who killed 36 women. Like, how in the world could that ever happen? Now, society has this word for them, psychopaths. And it means that they no longer have any understanding of right and wrong. Their conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. Sigmund Freud described that as this. Now, I don't quote Sigmund a lot. I thought about Sigmund this week. I, my dad used to make me watch the Andy Griffith show growing up. And this week, one of my favorite episodes was on, which is the education of Ernest T. Bass. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, okay. And in that episode, he says, Oh, Sigmund Freud had it right. So this is Sigmund Freud, what he has to say. He says, An iron curtain that is constructed between the ego and the id, 
Repression is said to be enforced. Neurosis occurs when the it breaks through the wall and overwhelms the ego. And I say, I don't have a clue what that means. But I know what biblically it means. It means that they have a conscience that's deadened. Now, it doesn't just happen to serial killers and Nazi soldiers. It seems like almost every week with people that I follow on Twitter or friends with on Facebook that I know that they have a friend that they know that's in ministry that got caught in a relationship with someone that they weren't supposed to be in a relationship with. These men that are standing before people week after week talking about the importance of living by God's Word, and yet there's an area of their lives that they've just given into so many times that they've become numb or deadened to whether or not that's actually a problem. Um, I read a, a counseling story this week about a guy that came in and uh, said, I'm in pastor, I'm in trouble, I'm in terrible trouble, I don't know what I'm going to do. The, the feds are after me. The police are after me. The banks are after me. They're garnishing my wages. He said, why are they doing that? He goes, well, I hadn't paid my taxes in 10 years. Well, how haven't you paid your taxes in 10 years? He said, because I decided 10 years ago it was against my conscience to pay my taxes. And he said, well, it's not against the Bible. He said, it's against my conscience. And he showed him some scripture. He said, I don't care. It, I want to trust my conscience, and it says it's not right. I had a blind spot there, just given into it enough. Some people have cheated on their income tax so long, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. I had this dilemma last year. I, uh, Being a minister, your taxes are a little different. And I was doing my income taxes, and I got through with them, and we had a sizable refund coming. I mean, that's always nice, you know, didn't expect that. So I was going back through and reviewing, and I saw one check mark I had not checked. And it reduced my refund amount to $78. One check. I had run, it, I was using online software. I had run the audit checker. You know the audit checker? It said I was clean. It said my risk of audit was low. I had audit protection. But I knew that I was supposed to check that little box. You would like to think as a pastor you'd make that decision pretty easily, right? But there was a lot of stuff we could have done with that money. And, it, you know, the government's not going to do anything with it better than what I can do with it. I checked the box, and we went to dinner somewhere, all right? But you see how easy it can be to not check the box, and then this year when I'm doing it, I didn't check it last year. It doesn't hurt anybody. And gradually your conscience gets seared. Gets worn out. Here's the last thing. Your conscience must be transformed by Jesus. If you could spend your entire life listening to and obeying your God-given conscience from the beginning, everything would be all right. But the Bible says how many of us have sinned? All of us. We all have. And as a result, we know we've sinned, and that we have a guilty conscience within us. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, you know who that is? Mark Twain, right? Mark Twain struggled with a guilty conscience, and he said, an uneasy conscience is a hair in the mouth. And then he said, 
I would trade mine for the smallpox and be glad of the chance. It says it's a nuisance, but it's such a nuisance I'd give it up for almost anything. He wrote a book called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay. It's kind of been in the news a little bit lately, too. And he said this, if I had, and y'all have to, uh, you know, I, I, I am told by people that live north of here that I have a southern accent, but I don't have a Mark Twain southern accent, all right? So you have to excuse my non-southern reading of Mark Twain. If I, had a pers- if I had a yaller dog that didn't know no more than a person's conscience does, I'd poison him. That conscience takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides and ain't no good know-how. Now, the interesting thing in there to me is it takes up more room than all the other insides. It's a consuming thing. The Bible says there's only one way to get rid of the conscience that's guilty. Let us draw near to God, Hebrews 10 says, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. The problem is, when our conscience is guilty, it's dirty. And it it influences how we see everybody else. There's a story of, of an old woman who used to sit in her house, and she didn't get out of her house much, and she used to watch her neighbors all the time, and she got more and more frustrated watching her neighbors. She just thought they were dirty. They had dirty clothes. They drove a dirty car. They had a dirty house, need some paint. Everybody would come over. She'd talk about her dirty neighbors over there. They, they need to clean up. Her daughter was over one day, and she was going through the whole thing. Have you seen that car? Do you see how dirty that car is? And so the daughter went over the window to check it out. She took her arm and she went like this. And then she went and got some Windex and she cleaned the window. And you know what? The neighbors got a lot cleaner. The window was dirty, not the people. Sometimes our lives have that guilty conscience and it makes us see things differently than they really are. Jesus said two things about our conscience. First of all, or the Bible says two things. Our conscience can only be cleansed by His blood. People try all kinds of things to cleanse their sin. They, they, uh, they crawl on their hands and knees up steep mountains. They think painful thoughts. They do painful things. They throw themselves into religious activity, trying all the time to ease their guilty conscience when the only thing that can ease our, intent, our guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus Christ and His forgiveness. In Hebrews 9, the author emphasizes the blood of all the goats and bulls sacrificed weren't able to forgive a guilty conscience. But when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, died on the cross for us, that cleansed our dirty conscience. Salvation consists of coming to God and admitting you're guilty. You have a dirty conscience. It's asking God to cleanse you of your sinfulness. It's accepting by faith that He has. It's being washed in the blood of the Lamb. And then the second thing is, we must retrain our conscience by diving into God's Word. We must retrain what we understand by setting our conscience to the Word of God. Uh, growing up, I, I worked for a couple of summers at a textile factory. And uh, I worked first shift. And so I got there at 7 and I 
left at 3. And then another crew came in from 3 to 11 and from 11 to 7. And I, I because I, I was summer help, I was first shift helping out the first shift. And there was a sound that was as sweet as any sound I have ever heard. And it was the whistle at 3 o'clock. Anybody ever worked in a factory? Anybody? You know what I mean, right? Three o'clock. And the sweetest sound, it sounded different on Friday than it did the rest of the week. And so you wanted to make sure that whistle was on the right time. Well, I read a story about a guy that it was his job to blow the whistle at the local factory. And so every day on his way to work, he would walk past this corner store that had a big grandfather clock in it, and he would set his watch to the clock so that he would be right on time. Well, one Saturday he was in the in the in the jewelry store, and he went up to the owner and said, "Man, uh, I've just noticed for years how accurate that clock is, and I just want to say I- I'm so grateful for that. How do you keep that clock so accurate?" And he says, "Well, this is what I do." He said, "Every afternoon at four o'clock, when that factory whistle blows, I know that's the right time, and I set my clock to the factory whistle." So the question is, what are you setting your conscience? It's like a clock. If you set it to the wrong time, it'll give you the wrong answer, even if you're a believer in Jesus and it's been washed clean. We've got to set our conscience to the Word of God. That's why what many of you did last year and some of you are doing this year in reading through the Bible, not, not just in the fact that you're reading through the Bible, but that you're just reading the Bible is so important. It has got to be a part of what you're doing on a regular basis. Understanding God's Word, diving into God's Word, listening to God's voice through His Word. And that's why we're going to joke a little bit over the next few weeks about um, Sunday school myths and things that are not in the Bible. And some of it is funny. I mean, you know, that, that mothers throw out, you know, the Bible says that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's innocent enough. You're just trying to get your kid to, re, you know, to clean his room. But some of it can be dangerous. And thinking that Scripture teaches that we ought to just let our conscience be our guide, well, like John said, what does that mean? What is our conscience like? I know this. There are days that I don't trust my conscience. Because it hasn't been set right. And so the question is, what do we let be our guide? And it's simply the Word of God. That is the guide and the book that we follow for faith and practice. Sometimes I don't understand it, Pastor. I don't either. There are days I don't. That doesn't excuse us from attempting to learn it and to seek God in showing it to us. One of the things that, that we as a staff have been praying about and are committing to and going to begin to hear some things about in the weeks and the months ahead is letting Scripture and what the Bible teaches guide who we are and are becoming as a church. And are we doing that? Are you doing that in your personal life? Are you doing your Sunday school classes? Are you doing the ministries you're involved in? Are you doing it at your workplace? Are you doing it in your home life? Are you doing it in your social situations? Us as a community asking the question, are we letting the Word of God establish who we are and what we're becoming. Now, 
to answer that question, you have to know the Word of God. And you have to ask some tough questions of yourself. And so, the reason I started with this one, even though it may not be the most obvious one, is because we've let so many other things be our guides. And the Word of God is the only reliable guide we have to the ways and understandings of who God is. And so, should we let our conscience be our guide? Maybe. If it's been set according to the Word of God. That we have accepted the gift of free grace that has been given to us. That we have passionately pursued Jesus with all we have. And we're learning what His Word says to us. Then we let it guide us. I joked about the income tax thing. I said it wouldn't have made a big difference, and it would. Now, obviously, I still remember it now. Can you imagine if I would have not checked the box? First of all, I wouldn't have told the story. Right? Let's just be let's be honest here, all right? Now, you knew I wasn't going to end the story with, and I left it unblank, and we had a party. But it would have lingered. And the more you do that, the more you walk away from what God intended. So here's the thing. Instead of let the conscience be your God, let the Word of God be your God. My Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides bone and marrow, revealing what is in the heart of man. Let the Word of God be your God.